Welcome to The Common Rounds. Medical education for medical students by medical students. Take this case. What could this be? An otherwise healthy 30-year-old man presents with a several-day history of progressive, severe, retrosternal chest pain that is sharp and pleuritic in nature. The pain is worse on lying down and improves when sitting forward. There is radiation to the neck and shoulders, and also specifically to the trapezius muscle ridges. The pain is constant and unrelated to exertion. On physical examination, a pericardial friction rub is heard at the end inspiration, with the patient leaning forward. Today we'll go through pericardial diseases, their signs, diagnosis, and management. There are four pericardial diseases that are commonly mentioned in medical books. Acute pericarditis, pericardial effusion, cardiac tamponade, and constrictive pericarditis. While they are listed as separate entities, I find it that they can be interlinked. Today I'll go through acute pericarditis and constrictive pericarditis. Next time we'll finish off the topic by talking about pericardial effusions and cardiac tamponade. Let's start off with the anatomy. What is the pericardium? The heart sits snugly in the mediastinum surrounded by the left and right lung. The pericardium is the layer that covers the heart. There are two pericardial layers. A fibrous layer that sits on the outside, anchoring the heart in place and an inner serous layer that can be classified into the visceral and parietal side. In between the visceral and parietal layers, there is the pericardial sac that contains fluid that acts as a lubricant. There is normally up to 50 mils sitting in the pericardial sac. Before we go into pericarditis, I want to quickly refresh your memory on basic inflammation physiology. I found that by understanding how inflammation occurs and the downstream consequences really helped me understand the symptoms and causes of pericarditis. Inflammation is a beneficial response by the body to foreign invaders or dead tissue. The body recognizes the injury, recruits white blood cells from the blood, the blood vessels vasodilate to allow the blood cells to go to the injured tissue, the white blood cells do their job, and usually the inflammation reaction resolves as the body heals. Common causes of inflammation include infections, tissue necrosis, foreign bodies, trauma, and immune responses. All of these can trigger inflammation. And by keeping these headings in mind, the causes for pericarditis can be deduced logically. If the initial inflammatory cause is not resolved quickly, the inflammation persists and is now called a chronic inflammation. The body reacts differently and this can lead to scarring, adhesions, and fibrosis. So what is acute pericarditis? Acute pericarditis is the inflammation of the pericardium. Up to 80% of the time, the cause is idiopathic. This means that we cannot find a reason, so we presume it's viral. Blame it on the viruses, per se. But which viruses? Coxsackie virus A, B, and also echovirus 2. So what about the other 20%? This is where the list of causes of inflammation come in handy. Under infections, we can think about bacterias such as strep pneumoniae and staph aureus. TB and fungal infections that can also cause acute pericarditis. Tissue necrosis such as after a myocardial infarction are also possible causes. Dressler syndrome is a delayed cause of pericarditis, two to eight weeks after an MI. Trauma such as cardiac surgeries can also induce pericarditis. Immune responses such as from SLE, rheumatoid arthritis, metabolic changes such as uremia, 
are also other causes that are frequently cited. Matter of fact, uremic pericarditis is an urgent indication for renal dialysis. How does urea cause pericarditis? Well, I'm not too sure, really. My understanding is that acute kidney injuries lead to uremia, or azotemia. This occurs as the blood urea nitrogen levels rise. Urea is really just a marker for the buildup of toxins that we don't measure in the blood that is normally excreted by the kidneys. So perhaps it's something else in the blood that's irritating the pericardium, causing the inflammation. Other causes also include drugs, neoplastic causes, and also from the radiation treatment that is used to treat the neoplasms. Pericarditis is often clinically described as a retrosternal pain that is pleuritic in nature, meaning that it's sharp and hurts when it breathes. This pleuritic pain is often relieved by sitting forward, and can also radiate to the trapezius. On physical examination, a multiphasic friction rub is heard as the pericardial layers rub against each other during atrial contraction, ventricular contraction, and ventricular relaxation. This is known as a triphasic friction rub. To diagnose pericarditis, JAMA recommends at least two of the following four criteria. A pleuritic chest pain relieved by sitting forward, a friction rub, appropriate ECG findings, or the presence of a pericardial effusion. In terms of diagnostic studies, an ECG and echocardiogram may be useful. The echocardiogram allows us to assess the presence and location of any effusions. The ECG, however, could help us differentiate this chest pain between pericarditis and a myocardial infarction. Typical changes in pericarditis are a diffuse ST elevation, that is concave in shape, and also you see a PR depression. These changes occur in all leads, except for AVR. This is in contrast with a myocardial infarction, where there is ST elevation in the affected leads according to the area of damage, and the shape can be convex in nature. There are a lot of other tests that can be done, such as chest x-rays, CTs, MRIs, and blood tests. These are warranted if you suspect a specific cause of pericarditis and are ordering the test to confirm your suspicion. But if there are no such indications, remember that 80% of pericarditis is idiopathic. So how do you treat acute pericarditis? Since it's an inflammatory disease, anti-inflammatory drugs such as high-dose NSAIDs are recommended. The use of colchicine has been shown to reduce the risk of recurrent pericarditis. One important note is to avoid using steroids if possible, as it can increase the rate of recurrent pericarditis. However, there are also exceptions and times where steroid use is necessary. Now let's move on to constrictive pericarditis. Constrictive pericarditis can occur when the pericardial inflammation has gone on long enough Chronic inflammation of the pericardium has resulted in adhesions and fibrous changes to the pericardium has made the tissue tougher and consequently more difficult to expand. In time, the fibrous tissue becomes so thick or calcified that the ventricles have a difficulty filling during diastole. Any cause of acute pericarditis can cause constrictive pericarditis. Causes such as TB, neoplasms, and radiation therapy are at a higher risk of causing constrictive pericarditis as they can result in chronic inflammation. The consequences of constrictive pericarditis is quite similar to restrictive cardiomyopathy, such that it is actually difficult to tell the two apart. One very important reason to differentiate between the two is because constrictive pericarditis is actually treatable. Patients with constrictive pericarditis may present with a gradual onset of dyspnea, fatigue, and peripheral swelling, 
such as the signs of right-sided heart failure. On physical examination, an elevated JVP with a prominent white ascent, also known as Friedrich's sign, as well as a positive Kuzmol sign, a raise in JVP during inspiration, could be found. Other clinical signs include hepatosplenomegaly, ascites, peripheral edema, and also possibly a pericardial knock may be observed. In terms of investigations, echocardiograms could show a thickened pericardium, as well as a bouncing septum for constrictive pericarditis. This bounce in the septum is because that there is limited space for the ventricles to expand outwards during filling that they push the intraventricular septum into the opposite ventricle. This alternates, and thus the septum bounces. In restrictive cardiomyopathies, the myocardium is thickened instead of the pericardium, and as such, the septum doesn't bounce. CT or MRI imaging would provide useful visualization of the thickened pericardium to make the diagnosis. Cardiac catheterization also allows the doctors to visualize the pressures within the ventricles to differentiate between the two entities. The treatment for constrictive pericarditis can be managed medically using diuretics if there is intravascular volume overload. In advanced cases, a surgical pericardiectomy may be warranted. To recap, we went through acute and constrictive pericarditis. We talked about the anatomy of the pericardium and also how basic inflammatory physiology can help us understand pericarditis. We talk about the clinical signs, the diagnostic criteria, and management of acute pericarditis, and also how constrictive pericarditis can occur. I'd like to re-emphasize that acute pericarditis may look like myocardial infarctions, so it's very important to differentiate the two on an ECG. Constrictive pericarditis can look like restrictive cardiomyopathies, and there are some key ways to try and differentiate the two. Next time, we'll talk about pericardial effusions and cardiac tamponade. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. study resources, visit our website on thecommonrounds.wordpress.com or visit us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. If you like our episodes, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes. It means a lot to us. You've been listening to The Common Rounds. I'm Hamid. And I'm Andy. And we'll see you next time. See you next time.